Ron Rensick always refers to the scatter plot as being like the fruit fly of visualization research. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Enrico Bertini, and I am a professor at New York University, where I do research and teach data visualization. That's right. And I'm Moritz Stefana. I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. In fact, I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the countryside in the north of Germany. Yes. And in this podcast, we talk about data visualization, analysis, and more generally, the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with one guest or two guests or even more guests on the show. <laughs> yeah, but before we start, just a quick note. Uh, our podcast is listener supported. We have no ads, uh, but that also means if you do enjoy the show, you could consider supporting us. You can do that either with recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories, or you can send us a one-time donation on paypal.me slash data stories. Exactly. So I think we can get started with the new show. So um, we didn't show up in a few weeks, if not months. So it's really exciting to be back. And we thought it would be a perfect occasion to be back to record a um, classic episode on the IEEE VIS conference. And uh, we have two special guests, as usual that are going to help us go through some of the highlights of the conference. So we have Mariah Meyer. Hi, Mariah. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And we have Daniel Safir. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. <laughs> so we always ask our guests to introduce themselves briefly. So Mariah, you want to start and then Danielle? Yeah, so hi, my name is Mariah. I'm a professor at the University of Utah, where I um, have the pleasure of co-running a group called the Visualization Design Lab. Danielle? And I am an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, where I direct the CU Visual Lab. Yes, great. So um, for those of you who need a little intro on the IEEE VIS conference is the main um, visualization conference, especially for academics, but not definitely not limited to academic research. It's a big event that happens every year and it's been happening for many, many years. And uh, it's a mix of events, uh, paper presentations, workshops, panels, um, posters, demos. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really big event. And as many other events, this year it happened online with a virtual conference format. So it's uh, it's been a new experiment, very interesting, and uh, as you will hear, with uh, pros and cons. <laughs> so the the way we're going to organize this, we decided to uh, basically cover the conference according to a number of themes. And uh, as we say every year when we record this special episode, it's practically impossible to cover everything. So that's definitely just a very small portion of what we managed to cover. <laughs> and especially this year that it was online and we were scrambling with many other elements of our life, <laughs> our private life. And um, 
So I encourage you to go to the iTripoli-Viz website and explore more. And effectively, this year, everything is is being recorded on YouTube. There was a Discord channel, so everything has been saved there. And um, so we are covering what we what we're going to cover is basically our interest in the hope that that's going to be interesting and inspiring <laughs> and i also saw john schwabisch's policy this podcast they oh, also yeah, published exactly. an episode today so this one will be maybe complimentary so uh, yeah exactly hopefully there's not there's not a lot of overlap so if you want to know more you should definitely uh, listen to that one too so um, let me give you a little bit of a preview of what we're going to cover. So the first theme is going to be unpacking the magic that happens between data and insight, which I love as a title. <laughs> this could be a whole episode, by the way. Science <laughs> and magic, the best combination. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we are going to talk about uh, this psychology. So vis vision, science, cognition, etc. Then we're going to talk about visualization beyond the desktop. Then we're going to talk about visualization and COVID-19, as you may expect, and also visualization for social good. Then we're going to go a little bit researchy and technical. So we're going to talk about methodological diversity, which has been a, a very interesting trend this year. And then we are going to cover a few papers with practical relevance for practitioners and briefly discuss about the what happened with having a full conference of this size online, the pros and cons of the online format. So I'm very happy that Mariah and Daniela are here, going to help us go through all these <laughs> complex uh, uh, topics. I think we can start with the first one, unpacking the magic that happens between data and insight. And I will let uh, Mariah start with that. Yeah. So this was this was a this was sort of a theme I saw across the whole week that really really excited me. Um, and I have to to say, you know, shout out to Danielle. You know, she uh, you were a, a member on a panel for the Believe Workshop where you presented this idea that there's magic that happens between seeing a visualization. And then actually getting some sort of insight from it. And sort of, I think what you were, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Danielle, but you were just sort of saying there's a lot of things going on in that space in between that we really don't understand. And the idea that we see a visualization and that that's the answer is a, is, you know, completely glosses over the process of what actually happens in data analysis. <laughs> so we saw this over and over again, and people really starting to unpack and question like the, the space. Um, and a couple of things that I think, you know, well, there was a number of places where people were trying to understand what's happening in there. But what I'm particularly interested in is sort of the implications that if, if there's a lot of stuff going on in the middle that we don't understand, maybe we're not designing visualizations for the right set of goals. And so mm -hmm. Enrico, I actually really loved a paper that you presented um, from your colleagues, Michael uh, Carell and Steve Franconeri, about why shouldn't all charts be scatter plots. And I thought this was really, <laughs> a really compelling um, sort of position paper that you all presented, which is, you know, the, 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 the academic viz community is so fixated on this idea of um, using spatial encoding so that we can get very accurate, precise um, perception of data measurements. But then mm -hmm. 
yet you presented all these exam- these counterexamples where, well, maybe precision isn't the thing that we're always after. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really provocative. And it really um, complemented another short paper that I saw that I loved that was called Designing for Ambiguity, where this research team from um, Simon Fraser University was working with avalanche forecasters. And the data that they had, you know, is taken from very sparse measurement centers and uh, the the sort of very subjective um, data that avalanche forecasters are collecting are things like several avalanches. And so in that paper, I thought it was nice because they were really stressing this notion of ambiguity in the analysis process that these avalanche forecasters go through. And when they were designing their visualizations, they actually chose what they considered weak encoding channels because that better reflected mm the sort of mental processes that these avalanche forecasters were going through. Um, and so why, inclu- why encode in a visualization lots of accuracy and precision when in fact that's not what the data necessarily tells you, mm. nor is it the way that in this case, these domain experts were working with the data. So I mm. thought that, you know, for me, there's a lot of these implications about better understanding that magic and what it means for the way that we design visualizations. I could keep going <laughs> about this very topic <laughs> forever, right? <laughs> yes, but but I, I think one more point to 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 all of this that I also for me was super resonant and I loved was um, John Byrne Murdoch. He gave the keynote for the Believe Workshop about his experiences designing these very popular um, uh, charts for the Financial Times in the UK about COVID cases over the last months and. He gave such a great keynote that was so thoughtful about his process and about the data and about people's response to it. And one of the things that was really powerful was he talked about how when people viewed the charts that they put out, how personal and political people's reactions to them were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so he sort of made this this stance that, you know, we as visualization designers have to recognize that people are bringing their own personal perspectives, their own biases, their own experiences to how they read and react to visualizations that we put out there. And so we spend all this time trying, you know, as scientists trying to make things like really clear and really precise. And yet people (laughs) aren't, you know, they're reading into things that we didn't necessarily even (laughs) intend and that we can't forget about that. Um, And so he had some really, really compelling examples in that keynote where this was coming up. Yeah, the, 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 there's so much to say about that. And um, I also really enjoyed um, John's keynote. He, he had a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of really, really good examples about how he over time changed the, the decisions about kind of like trying to adapt to his own discovery of how to do things better and properly. And also mm. the the wish to be criticized and try to address the criticism. I think that was one of one of the most interesting aspects of the work that he has done during during this period. And um regarding the precision thing, I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned our papers because uh, I, I was myself really surprised by the positive feedback that we received because in, in my head I was always afraid that that it was it was too obvious right i was always <laughs> <laughs> thinking maybe maybe this thing has been said by a thousand a thousand times by a hundred people already and uh, um but i 
yeah, I'm really glad. And uh, it's only a starting point. I think what what we're doing there is just to say, hey, it looks like there's an issue here. We, we, it doesn't look like we have a good understanding of how visualization works. So maybe we should do something about it. And um, But there is a lot to build. And, and, and I'm not a big fan of being only the one who destroys things. I think we also have to build, right? <laughs> um, so I think there, there's a big challenge there. I was going to say, I don't think you're destroying anything, Enrico. I think that I think that really what what it means is that there is so much we don't know and there's so much more we could be thinking about how we design and what we design mm-hmm. for than just mm. really clear, accurate reading off of values from a visualization. That, that's also something I, I found really striking because I think we are familiar with that debate. Like Enrico, we had it on this podcast for many years, you know, times, and talking yeah. to, to people outside also academia, like practitioners, artists who have huge sensibilities in these areas and always had this feeling like, okay, precision is not everything. And <laughs> you need to think about the effect of, you know, the communication side of things. But we never had that vocabulary to actually articulate well what all these other factors are or what all these other like contributions could be. And my feeling is now this vocabulary is being developed because now all these thoughts are being taken really serious. And, and now the... Uh, academic community thinks about how to integrate actually into the scientific framework, right? And that's, uh, it's great to see that it's happening. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a lot of fun to see the community evolving in these ways and kind of recognizing that perception and reasoning and insight are not the same thing. They're not all, you measure one, you get the others. And mm-hmm. so yeah. it's been fun seeing that, you know, we've talked for years about what is the value of a visualization. It's really fun to see the community really starting to adjust and adapt and build these interdisciplinary communities that are integrating all sorts of lenses and methods and perspectives for really understanding what is the value of a viz and how do we know what is going to come out of somebody interacting with a viz and how does that impact the design that we need to be using, right? Thinking about guidelines is almost more of a predictive tool than a a prescriptive tool. We're not trying to tell people what to do, but we're trying to think about how does making this design choice or how does configuring the viz this way or framing the problem in this way change the kinds of outcomes that we expect users to generate through their data? Yeah, yeah. Look, and it's um, it's exciting. I really hope that this is a trend and we see more, more people trying to build on top of this and try to provide um, better, I don't know if I should call it guidelines, but I think when I think about the way that I have been learning data visualization and especially the way I've been teaching visualization, by the way, as a side note, that's one of the reasons why we got started with that project. I was teaching visualization in class. I would just follow the precepts and then students would come back to me. I would assign up a, a, a design exercise and then it would come back to me and say, oh, but you told me to do it that way because that's the most precise channel. <laughs> and, <laughs> right? and they would come up with a scatter plot that doesn't make any sense for the problem that I, w- that I had assigned, right? I was like, yeah. oh, that's, that's actually true. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, students like, like, like children have this special property that they can tell you things in a candid way and, and you realize that you've been stupid so far, right? <laughs> and um, so I, I, what I'm really curious about is how, how, to, how to 
make progress? How can we think better about how to design effective visualizations? And I think that there are a lot of roadblocks there. So the idea that even the idea that the goal is to visualize data, I mean, we could talk for hours about how many problems there are in just this message. My goal is to visualize data. Um, so let, let's Ob see what objectively. is going to happen. Objectively. Objectively. No, I feel like we're almost cringing on what might be coming down the road here, that positivist versus interpretivist discussion. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, maybe we could move on to the second theme. Maybe and it has to do uh, with that, talking to cognitive scientists right, and psychologists. Exactly. <laughs> right? Who so knows? the second theme is uh, this psychology. So I think that's a trend that has been going on for a while and it's getting amplified lately. My perception is that we are seeing more and more research work that is core psychology and vision science. So vision science has always played a major role in visualization, but now we start seeing more, more works that are even more like at the level of, of, of uh, cognitive science. And in addition to that, it looks like there are many people whose background is not necessarily engineering or computer science, it more, is more psychology or related fields, who are active participants and also authors of, of several papers in the in the conference. And I think that's uh if I had to pick my favorite trend, that's my favorite trend. I think we need we we need more of that, right? And for those who are not aware of that, this has been always like um predominantly um attended and um also most of the papers have been authored by people who have a background in computer science with with notable exceptions but mostly that and um so um one one example of something that happened there is the there was actually a a, a workshop called this psychology workshop and um, the keynote speaker for the workshop was Barbara Tversky renowned um, cognitive scientist. We all also had her in our podcast a few podcasts ago. Yeah, I don't yeah, remember yeah. exactly how Seems many. Seems like ages, but it's probably <laughs> just six months. <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, yeah, and many, many, many papers. And um, I would let Danielle start talking about this trend since... A lot of the work that she does is also in this space, and she also has lots of collaborations with uh, vision scientists and psychologists. Yeah, I mean, it, it's I, I agree with you, Enrico. It's a trend I'm personally very excited about because it really is bringing new lenses, new methods, new voices, new knowledge into the community to modernize the way we're thinking about this kind of magic that happens between when somebody sees something and when they actually generate a conclusion from it. Um, so one of the things that really stuck out to me in Barbara's keynote was this idea that she talked about with ambiguity and how, again, designing for precision isn't always the right thing to do. But then the question for us as designers becomes, how do we leverage ambiguity correctly? How do we do so in a way that balances getting the right kinds of information with people being able to bring their own perspectives into things? Um, and I think we're seeing a really interesting evolution of kind of the, the methodological approaches that we're seeing taken to understanding this as being shaped in large part by not only talking to psychologists, 
but also having them come in and join their community. So when we think about people like Karen Schlosty, Frank and Ari, Ron Resnick, Lace Padilla, I can go on and on. There are all sorts of amazing (laughs) people. And I apologize to anyone I'm leaving (laughs) off that list who are really coming in and shaping and fundamentally changing the way we're thinking about understanding visualization, understanding visualization design, why it works, how does it shape what we see when we work with a visualization? And again, how does it shape things like insight? I saw in the um, in the Discord channel, we had some people from social psychology who were attending for the first time. And, you know, educational psychology is becoming increasingly core to a lot of what we're thinking about in viz pedagogy. So I think there is a growing community that I'm selfishly hoping we'll continue to keep growing. That's really shaping a lot of our approaches to visualization and challenging some of our core beliefs around the way we approach visualization design. Cool. Is there one paper you could pick out where you say if if people are interested in in what came out this year, is is there a good recommendation? Well, I think the uh, InfoViz best paper this year, which was by Alex Kale, Matt Kay, and Jessica Holman, is a great example of this. So what mm-hmm. they did is they had people use different uncertainty visualizations in a decision-making task. Um, and what they found was that there was a distinct disconnect between the things that supported precise estimation of effect sizes, so kind of precise statistical reasoning about the data, and those visualizations that were best used in decision-making. So mm-hmm. I think that work, you know, not only is it just a really well-conducted experiment, I think it also brings in a lot of these ideas of how do we connect in the cognitive components of things? How do we connect in the Bayesian reasoning components of things? How do we connect in the vision science behind what we might be seeing? And kind of giving some nice feelers out into these different aspects of um, at least cognitive and perceptual psychology that influence the way we work with Viz. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, as a, as a sort of alternative perspective, um, I, I think that, that, yeah, there's been this, you know, over the last couple of years and then this year, just such a growth in, in the sort of very, I, I, I kind of want to say basic vision science sort of work and, and experiments happening at Viz. I, the vision scientists might not think that they're super basic research, but I think for us as an applied <laughs> community, they, they really are. And I think it's really interesting. But I think we've also, you know, sort of likening back to what we were just talking about, I think there's also an interesting trend of people um, in the community also starting to articulate what are the boundaries of what these kinds of experiments can tell us about Mm. visualizations Mm -hmm. in the world. Um, There was a paper um, that struck me, or at least the, the, the presentation of it struck me called Insight Beyond the Numbers. Um, and the impact of qualitative factors on visual data analysis that I thought was really interesting because um, in this work, they, I mean, of course, going back to this magic that happens, but just saying that there's a lot of things um, that impact the way that visual visualizations are used that are perhaps not, they're not things that we can really quantify. And so um, I think, you know, as we've seen a sort of a rise of vision science influencing um, academic visualization research, we've sort of also seen the rise of a lot of people pushing on the socio-technical aspects of visualization. And then, of course, the thing that we're going to talk about later, which is the sort of methodological diversity then that comes out of, you know, Mm -hmm. the community really starting to broaden its base in all these sort of different ways that we're approaching understanding visualizations and ultimately trying to um, better understand how we design visualizations to make positive impact in the world. Yeah, the, the, there's so much to do in the in this space. And um, I also like this paper, 
think the title is A Design Space of Vision Science Methods for Visualization Research. And <laughs> I think it's uh, um, it's amazing how... So I, I didn't read the paper closely, but I skimmed through it, right? And I had um, kind of like this contrasting feeling that on the one hand, it's like it's super exciting. There's so much to learn here about how I could run better experiments. And on the other hand, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> maybe what I've done so far all these years is, is totally <laughs> wrong. Because <laughs> effectively, what happens is that as a, as a researcher, you set up experiments and you try to effectively follow a safe path of trying to use the same methods that other people have used. But rarely you question how these um, methods may actually limit the way you, what you can know, right? Mm -hmm, and I think that's mm -hmm. a, that's a, that's a general, a general problem. So I think that's an exciting paper where um, there is a lot that we can learn about how to run experiments that can draw information from, from vision science. And I can uh, speak a little bit to some of the backstory <laughs> in that one, which uh, that one in large part came from lots of discussions where, you know, um, so Madison Elliott, Cindy Zhang and Christy Nuthelfer are the, the co-authors on that paper. And they are all psychologists. They all have really yeah. high value in terms of thinking about how do we understand phenomena through different perspectives and what those different perspectives of um, understanding the ways we use visualization can collectively tell us about visualization techniques. And so a lot of this comes from their experiences of just sitting and immersing themselves in the visualization community as vision scientists and trying to understand how can methodologically we create new value within the community and help people understand these representations in different ways to exactly that point that you raised Enrico of, you know, how do you, how do you choose from all of these different possible ways of understanding a visualization? And maybe you don't need to choose just one. So hopefully, hopefully that kind of design space structure will allow us to start thinking about the trade-offs in the approaches that we engage with within the space of visualization itself. Well, and, you know, just what you were saying, Danielle, about let's not also forget to mention you were co-author on that paper, um, but that, you know, your, your collaborators on this are all people that are not um, core computer scientists. Like, I think the, 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 the visualization academic research community is still, you know, the, the majority of people there are coming up through some sort of computer science or engineering or very like science-y oriented sort of background. And yet I think this trend of vision science, this trend of the socio-technical um, aspects, yeah. all are pointing to the fact that, you know, more and more of us are putting people front and center in the kinds of studies we do. And, and I find that so exciting because it's bringing in lots of, you know, uh, new people into the community, like, for example, Steve Frankenary and Lace Padilla, whose backgrounds are in, you know, cognitive science. Um, we have designers like, like yourself, Moritz, and others. Um, but I think it also speaks to um, the, the challenges that we have in education 
um, for mm. visualization. Like if, you know, your typical mm. biz course is still taught out of the CS department. <laughs> and, um, you know, this came up in the um, Viz for Social Good panel. Um, a lot mm. of what they were saying about how do we have bigger impact for visualization is about we got we to gotta learn how to work with people. We need to work with people outside of the community. And so we're increasingly um, needing to train ourselves and train the next generation of, of visualization researchers to do more than just be able to program and to data wrangle and to do, you know, statistical analysis. Like, you know, people are becoming more and more the focus of a lot of the research that we do, which probably for many people listening to this podcast, they're like, well, yeah, but um, I I think for the the academic research community, this is, this is like a, a shift that we're seeing. And I mean, Enrico and Danielle, maybe, maybe, you know, you feel the same way. You're both also in, you know, technical departments and um, teaching biz. Yeah. There, there, yeah. There is a lot to say about the pedagogy of this and where, where and how it is, it is thought. Um, I think it requires a whole episode. <laughs> we could go on forever. Um I just want to mention, you just reminded me, Mariah, that another thing that I've seen happening in the conference, I've seen people using frameworks, ways to think about visualization and how visualization is used, borrowing frameworks from education science. And I think that's another very, very interesting area. And um, I actually happen to have one of the few things that I managed to do during this this crazy summer is to study a little bit of education science and uh, mm-hmm. also lear- learning science how how humans learn and it's it's first it th- there's so much to learn <laughs> right and I I kept thinking oh my god this is so close to to visualization research there is mm-hmm. so much to borrow from from learning science because effectively, Think about it. A person who is reading a visualization is learning about something through a visual representation. Mm. And it's surprising that we never talk about what learning scientists have developed over many, many years. So it looks like a, a, a big gap that we have. And um, that that's why I was really glad to see here and there some people mentioning frameworks adopted from education science. I think I, I, I remember was this paper on communicative this where they use the Bloom taxonomy that is a common taxonomy used to describe different levels of knowledge that learners um, can acquire and acquire over time. And um, so I would love to see more of that because I think there is a really a lot to learn from learning. Mm. learning science. Sheila Carpendale also mentioned ideas from constructivist learning in her uh, exactly. capstone keynote where, where they thought yes. about how do you actually build visualizations and how do you learn while building visualizations, not just as a passive recipient, but as somebody building uh, and, and having to modify a visualization. And suddenly you're in a totally different learning mode, right? And that's, yeah, as you say, these are pretty straightforward like ideas, but if you bring them in yes. from this adjacent field, suddenly really interesting things can happen, right? Yeah, there, there was another great, Great presentation from Eitan Adar. He he had a paper. Yeah, that's the one I um, mentioned. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, I think they communicated uh, this. Yes. Yes. Go ahead. Right. Sorry. Okay. Right. I remember right. that he talked a lot about learning <laughs> outcomes and how we can use that yes. to judge visualization. But it just it got me thinking. That was one of my favorite like talks to watch because uh, 
he was sitting in this big leather like like <laughs> yes. armchair. I mean, there were some there were some really creative things that people did with having to pre-record <laughs> videos. But he's just sitting in this armchair. He's relaxed. I felt so relaxed, <laughs> and he's just talking and. And he, it was it was a really really well done talk, not just content wise, but also the sort of aesthetics of the whole thing. It's it's worth a watch. I agree. There's a good choice of colors as well. I think he used some lamps or something. Yes. So that was really well well prepared. Yeah. We should link so we should in, hand in out, the show notes. Hand out That's... awards for the best video backgrounds. Is that what yes. you're saying? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And. Um, just to mention another thing. So one thing that I learned by by reading about learning science that struck me as like fundamental in the way we do research and visualization. Um, so in learning science, a, a very common issue is that if you measure an outcome right after learning or after a while, mm -hmm. you get completely different results, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what really matters in learning is what stays in the long term, not in the short term. And the same intervention can be, so if you compare A and B, A may be better in the short term, but be worse in the long term, right? So we have no idea whether the same happens with visualization. It looks like a no-brainer to me. Like we almost never do that. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not aware of studies that look at what happens right after or or after a week or after a month. So I think that's um, that, that that's a really interesting uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to mention one thing that I learned that I think it's uh, it's interesting. Um, I suggest that maybe we should move on to the methodological diversity because I think it's a really good segue to what we are discussing, right? And um, Danielle, maybe you want to start with that? Yeah, so I think we've we've touched a little bit on this and that kind of borrowing yeah. methods from psychology or by borrowing methods from educational science. But I think what we're seeing more deeply, at least this year, it felt like it was really manifesting in a very visible way is kind of pushing visualization out of its comfort zone generally in terms of the methods we use to understand this. So we, you know, we have our classical, you know, AB comparison style of experiment and study. But one of the things that I think really came through, and especially I'm thinking Tamara Munzner's um, provocation as part of the Believe panel was this call for more mixed methods that we're not going to understand how visualization works by only running quantitative studies. We're probably not going to understand how it works by only running qualitative studies and by developing a more rigorous base on both the quantitative and the qualitative end, and then understanding how we can bring those two perspectives together in terms of mixed methods approaches. So these kind of investigations that leverage both the qualitative and the quantitative in the same context for the same scenario and match up the outputs of those results we're more likely to actually really understand what's going on with a viz and why it works. So I think we're seeing a lot of rigor. You know, we've already talked about a lot of it coming from the perceptual and empirical side. Uh, but there was a, a really intriguing paper about kind of the more humanist perspective and humanist thinking and how that might shape visualizations for more rhetorical purposes and for purposes aligned more closely with uh, rhetorical insight. So that was this introducing layers of meaning, a framework to reduce semantic distance of visualization in humanistic research. And it's really kind of asking us to pivot and stop treating every application area as if it's the hard sciences and as if 
it's hypothesis generation and hypothesis confirmation, and instead take a more critical glance at the ways that we assess and we think about visualization broadly. And um, I won't try and summarize this paper, Mariah, because you can do it far more justice than <laughs> I can. But following immediately on the heels of that paper, if we weren't already in awesome qualitative methods land, was the work that you all were doing uh, with the Evo Bio Design Study and thinking about what does it mean to actually do interpretivist work in the context of visualization and do it well. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that plug, Danielle. <laughs> um, yeah, a, a quick comment about the um, introducing layers of meaning paper, which I also I, I really loved. And, and the thing that struck me additionally about that paper that was so done so well was their ability to take sort of cr like critical thinking and critique and actually do something actionable with it. Um, I know like for myself, I, I often get frustrated by some of the, the uh, critical theory work that has looked at visualizations because it provides a lot of critiques. And then I'm like, well, great. I agree with all that, but now what? And this paper actually took a step <laughs> of producing guidelines or a framework for how we can think about applying some of the, you know, critiques about power and inclusion, how we can actually do something with that as viz designers. So that I thought was a really actionable paper. Um, and then the, the paper that you, you mentioned, um, Danielle, that, uh, uh, a student Jen Rogers was the, um, first author on that paper was built on a design study, but what we really wanted to do was really say, okay, if we're going to focus, we want to focus on trying to have rigor in this design study based upon some criteria that um, that myself and Jason Dykes laid out last year. What does that look like in a design study? And what we found is that it completely changed the kinds of learning and contributions that we came out with at the end. So we did a design study with some evolutionary biologists it went about as you might expect. We went and spent time with them. Well, well, Jen spent time with them. We designed some tools. We had some new visualization techniques that came out of it. But we learned so much more than just new techniques from the process. And one of the things we focused a lot on was transparency. I know that's something that I heard multiple calls for qualitative work, something we have to focus on. So how do we make the design process and our process of getting to insight more transparent as researchers? And so a couple of things we tried to do was one, we collected, well, Jen collected, uh, you know, over a hundred different artifacts that we recorded. And then we tried to develop ways to communicate those out. Um, uh, so we include this companion website where you can see all the artifacts. Um, but then the another thing that we experimented with was how do we actually link to evidence within a paper? I think this is something that a lot of qualitative work, it's really hard to do because there tends to be so much evidence, you know, in the forms of transcripts and sketches. And so we included these deep links in the paper, just like you would cite like a like a like a reference paper, we cited bits of evidence that you could click on and actually pull up that evidence um, in a browser. And so for us, this was just um, some experiments in, in how do we start to think about transparency in terms of qualitative work. Um, and, and so that that was some really exciting stuff I thought that came out of out of that. Um, but that also, that led to, to some things that I thought were also sort of interesting with respect to um, communicating results that, that I saw um, at Viz. Um, I, there was, there was an um, interesting paper um, called Data Comics for Reporting Controlled User Studies um, mm -hmm. that I really loved, um, in part because, I'll be perfectly honest, I find the reporting of results from controlled studies to be kind of 
dry and I know it's important, but like, it's hard for me to get through and there's <laughs> figures and there's text and the text is like, look at the lower left-hand corner of figure 5A. And I'm like, gosh, what is that? <laughs> um, but, you know, there's this, this uh, data comics idea for um, how, how can we how can we sort of bring um, more visual explanatory, explanatory kinds of techniques to how we are communicating those results? And then I think another really um, cool example of this was a paper that um, we've talked about already, which was the one from Alex Kale, Matthew Kay, and Jessica Holman. And what they did in their paper um, is they actually had on one column, because it's a two-column format, on the left column, they had a series of of statistical results shown in charts. And on the right, they had their text. And they actually had um, lines that linked to specific um, color-coded lines that linked to specific lines of text that linked then to the visualization that you should be looking at oh, of their yeah. data. That really yeah. helped me as someone who, you know, who, who struggles to navigate those kinds of descriptions. I thought it was a really nice example of how we can move towards making um, our results more easy, you know, more accessible, and ultimately the, the the process we go through, I think, more transparent. I think that's a great point. As we're seeing these methods and the variety of methods, both on the experimental design and the statistical analysis side, get more complex and sophisticated. I think we are kind of losing sight that we leave ourselves behind as readers and consumers of this information. So that's a that's a really fun point. Yeah, and if somebody should be good with data storytelling, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it should be us, right? So I think we should set a good example, hopefully, in how we report our own stuff. <laughs> you know, it's funny, more. It's like I've heard this critique of the Viz academic community. We spend so much time thinking about visualizations for other people. And then you yeah. like flip through our papers and it's like, gosh, like, shouldn't you spend some Sorry. time thinking about Viz for Viz? So that's, that's why these two papers got me excited because it, it is sort of thinking about how can we be better communicators ourselves. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think we can switch to the next theme. I think we have this beyond the desktop. Um, lots of, we seem to focus on a, a lot of things that are unconventional, which I think is good. <laughs> um, Danielle, you want to start with that? Yeah, and I think that unconventional label is a great way to refer to it. You know, it's <laughs> it's one of those where you still you mentally think visualization, you think somebody sitting at a desktop with Excel or Tableau or Power BI or choose your favorite business intelligence suite in front of them. But increasingly, we're getting all these really interesting ways of bringing data into more immersive spaces, whether it be large scale displays, augmented reality, physicalization. I still think possibly the coolest thing I saw at Viz this year was um, some work called Uplifts, a tangible and immersive tabletop system for casual collaborative analytics. And the basic idea here was like, we have our interactive touch table. We have our augmented reality headsets. We have 3D printed tangibles. At one point, they had Legos with fiduciary markers on it. Like, basically <laughs> bring all the cool toys together to do really interesting collaborative work. But while that system was so cool, one of the things that I think um, it really shows, and this was echoed in a lot of systems like Databreeze, um, the Anatomical Edutainer, which was the best short paper winner this year, is this idea that we are really starting to explore what the true affordances are of visualization when we take it off the monitor and trying mm -hmm. to understand, you know, these trade-offs between data ownership. When am I doing analysis that I just want to do personally and I'm not ready to share it with somebody else yet? Or these broader collaborative affordances of these large screen displays, or even something as simple as 
can I play with paper and figure out, you know, get my hands dirty building these visualizations and interacting with them in fun and playful ways. And this connects into some of the constructivist work that Sheila also talked about in her keynote. So I think as a community, we're really starting to move beyond the can we do it in terms of pulling this off the desktop and starting to move into the why should we do it? What are what are the things that we can do when we move data off a desktop and into an augmented reality headset or into a physical embodiment that we can't necessarily do with a traditional representation in 2D? Mm. Yeah, I was I was floored by the number of papers dealing with immersion this year, um, and mm. so I think it, it completely speaks to what you're saying, Danielle. And and what I thought was interesting about a lot of this work is that um, uh, it it is taking this this approach of like, well, immersion, for example, isn't just about immersing myself in a 3D scatter plot, which many of us for years have been like, why would you ever do that? But Finally. now it's saying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was definitely some some immersion in 3D scatter plots. Um, but you know, it but it's it's going beyond that. And, th- and and a lot of these immersion papers were looking at immersion for collaboration. And I saw you know where people used immersion, so you have your private space, but then you have your public space where people can share you know scatter plots and you know line charts and stuff. And so I, I just I think that's such an interesting trend. And as someone who has for so long been like, why would we use immersion for particularly abstract data? I suddenly this year was an inflection point for me. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, wow, there's a lot of really interesting ideas that people are mm-hmm. playing with. Um, so I, I I feel like this is this is definitely um, a trend that I think is going to stick and we're going to see a lot more of this. Yeah, one of the cool things I think also coming out this year, building on what you said, Mariah, about the sticking, a lot of the papers that were presented this year on these kinds of immersive AR, VR systems are also releasing toolkits that make it easier for people to get involved in this. I remember when my Mm -hmm. lab was first getting involved in it, it was like, where do we even start in terms of building all of this? Mm. Um, And I, I think the release of a lot of these toolkits is going to greatly scaffold that barrier to entry and getting involved in immersion and make it easier for us as a community to really explore this space. Yeah, that, that, that's crucial. That's crucial. From my perspective, I think one aspect that I always found interesting and is that my sense is that one advantage of immersion over other methods is the emotional component, right? Being immersed in in a space can effectively have a much stronger effect on your emotions. At least that's my working hypothesis. I I don't know if it's it's true or not. And it's one of those things that, because in my head, I'm always thinking, what is the advantage of doing it this way rather than the traditional way? And I can't imagine standard environments having the same emotional impact that you can have when you are immersed mm. in a in a space. And um, I think one of the papers that we have in our list here, I believe it covered this, this aspect. I'm not sure because I didn't read it. I think there was one on data visualization, enabling deeper understanding of data using virtual reality. So there, it looks like there's, there's a component there. I may be wrong because honestly, I didn't read it yet. Um, but I don't know. That, that that's my sense. And again, I'm, I may be wrong. But mm. um, if I had to mention one 
one advantage of being immersed over over not being immersed is is emotion how emotional the the experience can be the whole idea of having an experience when you are immersed you can have an experience right mm. and mm. Um, yeah i don't know yeah and i think also like this traditional notion of a desktop computer that was so standard for so many decades and how people use it that they would be like concentrated and uninterrupted sitting in front of a screen alone you know that's just uh, now it's happening again but <laughs> it's sort of going away <laughs> yeah. and i think yeah even on the desktop you're much more distracted so i think there yeah. could be this huge oh value God. in saying i just do one thing at a time for 15 minutes here right yes. and, and maybe that was like 10 years ago much more the standard and and now we don't have these 15 <laughs> minutes anymore and we actually need cinematic experiences to to get back to that concentration right Who knows? I, had, yeah. I had an epiphany yesterday i i decided to work using only my ipad it's so much better <laughs> It's like I, it's <laughs> you like, can do only one thing at a time, right? Yeah, so right. It, it, it's really it's much yeah. more limited, but it's a plus, mm -hmm. right? I can't just do a thousand different things, and yeah. Anyway, See, um, there you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, well, building off of this idea that data is personal, which is something that I saw um, in multiple places, including yes. at um, Biz for Digital mm -hmm. Humanities. There were some interesting yes. papers around that. But there was a really nice example um, called Chemicals in the Creek, designing a mm -hmm. situated data physicalization for open government data with the community. Mm -hmm. That was really mm -hmm. interesting. And, and, and this was a um, participatory project where researchers were pairing up with a group of activists in Massachusetts um, who uh, work with community members who all live near a creek that is where, which is where um, a lot of uh, uh, chemical plants are are violating EPA regulations and dumping things into their water systems. Mm, mm. And what they did is they really wanted to think about ways to engage with this community and to help them better understand these EPA violations. And so they developed this, this kind of ceremony actually has ended up how they describing it, the ceremony where the community, where they had lanterns that represented violations and they had this, this get this event where people came and they saw these lanterns being released into the Creek And then they, um, afterwards, the, the activist community um, or the activist members and the research members facilitated a conversation with the community about this. And what I, what really struck me, some of the things they talked about was the sort of embodied experience where some of the community members got to put the lanterns representing the violations in the water and how, like, how important that was for people and, and the sort of juxtaposition between this beautiful data display of these glowing lanterns on the water with people trying to to understand that that actually represented kind of horrible environmental issues going mm -hmm. on. Um, and so anyway, but from a research perspective, I think what's interesting about this is it, it starts to bring up some of this, the emotional nature of data, the sort of embodiment that visualizations can have with the, you know, data physicalization with immersion and how that really, that, that impacts people. And I think, also makes this question, well, what is the point of visualization? And in this case, the visualization was about facilitating a conversation among these community mm. members, about empowering them by having them better understand what's going on in their um, in their communities. Um, and, and I think that gets back to, again, to this magic, which is 
does it really mm. matter that that these did these lanterns need to precisely like represent some sort of data values? Was that even the point of the visualization? Mm. So yeah. sort of I think really like starting to to think about like what 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 can visualizations do? And this was I thought a really interesting paper um, that I think to what you were saying, Danielle starts to really push what we're seeing in the academic community as things that we can you know that we as visualization academics think are interesting research things to think about. All right. And I think we can move on to the next theme. <laughs> we're almost done. So the next one we wanted to cover is this and COVID-19 and this for social good. Should we start with COVID-19? I think, Mariah, maybe you can start talking about the... Um, COVID-19 coverage that we had uh, in the Believe Workshop and also the COVID panel? Yeah, so um, again, hearkening back to John Byrne Murdoch's um, really fascinating keynote for Believe, um, one of the things that he called out our community on is the notion of accountability. So, um, and you know, this is coming up because he gave a keynote about his experience of designing visualizations of COVID data over the last six months. And one of the things that he pointed out is that he didn't just drop these visualizations and then sort of disappear. He <laughs> engaged with the, mm. the, the sort of consumers of those visualizations. He continued to engage with people um, through, he, you know, he's very prolific on Twitter. And so he would often, you know, ask, um, you know, readers of the visualizations for feedback on various design choices that they were making. And in this way, he engaged people in a conversation around the data, the decisions he was making, why or why not. And I thought this was a really powerful example um, of how we in the Viz community can do a lot better at um, thinking about how uh, of, of, of the sort of ethics of exit, which is, you know, we go in, we solve a problem, we have a visualization, <laughs> we write a paper and we're done. But, but really, I think that John's example is a nice, is, is a nice sort of story about things that we could, we could strive more for and, mm. and, and learn a lot, I think, from engaging in that way. Um, the other thing I thought there was a, uh, a uh, panel that was um, organized around visualizing um, data uh, around the, the pandemic. And there's a lot of really interesting things said on that. But another sort of ding, I think, to the to the Viz community came from um, Anna Christiane, who was sort of saying, like, why all of a sudden do we have a panel on visualizing pandemic data? Why? Where where was this panel for Ebola? Where was this for swine <laughs> flu? Like, why now? Like, where is the Viz community, you know, in wanting to do good? Like, 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 <laughs> we need to, to sort of rethink like our you know, uh, our priorities, our sort of values, <laughs> yeah. yes, our priorities, for example. And so I thought that that, that was a really um, interesting critique of our community. Um, and one that I think is worth for us to reflect on, like, what do we learn from this? And, and, you know, should, what are different kinds of problems that we could be seeking out? And I think that sort of, that sort of um, complemented nicely the panel on Viz for um, social good and what they were talking about there. Uh, it's funny you bring in the like drop a vis and run kind of thing, right? That came up in Viz for Social Good in the context of parachute research and thinking about <laughs> what are the incentive structures to stay engaged? You know, what are the ethical ways of representing data? How do we, you know, 
how do we incentivize these kinds of contributions that may not fit into conventional, like publish, cut and run incentive structures that are just kind of the bean counting sorts of things that we all engage in in the academic space and think about how our work can actually have a real impact. And that's why what you mentioned, Mariah, about Anna's comment really resonates, I think, really well with that. This idea of why are we not considering the social impact of our work as part of the contribution of that work? And what would it mean to to change the way we're thinking about things in that way? Yeah, this also makes me think about the problem. I am myself conflicted with the problem of continuously innovating, right? Because we definitely have uh, lots of incentives to be continuously innovating. And I, I wouldn't say it's wrong, right? On the other hand, uh, it has to go hand to hand with, with reflection. And uh, I had a personal experience lately. I have a project that I've been doing with a colleague at the medical school where we analyze uh, incredibly simple plots <laughs> that um, clinicians use to, to during their practice, basically to, to see what's the um, subjective, uh, how would you say that, subjective, um, we have subjective metrics of the patients that are collected about how the patients feel over time, right? And um, so we, we, we run a number of interviews with clinicians. And what struck me as really surprising is how much you can learn about a quote-unquote stupid um, line, line plot, <laughs> right? Line chart. It's like a, we have hours of audio recording about how every single clinician or physical therapist reasons about a single line on the, on, <laughs> right? And it's, um, it's humbling in a way. And um, I think where, how to find the right balance between innovation and reflection and also having the wish to study things that look too simple, but they are not too simple. Um, I think it's an interesting, an interesting problem for our community. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Ron Rensick always refers to the scatter plot as being like the fruit fly of visualization research, that there's <laughs> a lot going on there, even though it seems <laughs> like it should be really simple. And so it's a great kind of like model organism to jump further into his metaphor for how we might actually make sense of what's going on in a viz. And it's something that we use in the wild a lot more often than I think we even realize, though. This gets back to your paper, Enrico, about why not just always a scatter plot and yeah. the, the circular <laughs> argument there. Well, I also like what you were saying, Enrico, about like your your project and, and it being simple visualizations and how as an academic biz person that's kind of hard. But I just want to point out that in this entire conversation, we haven't talked about a single paper that's really about new visualization techniques. Mm -hmm. We've talked Notably about a lot correct. of things yeah. that are looking at how people think about visualization, you know, how people perceive mm -hmm. visualization. We've talked, you know, about how do we collaborate with other with other domains? Um, what's the role of visualization? And and I see that. I mean, that's that's been a trend that I've seen is that there's not that many papers anymore that we see that are truly innovative new visualization techniques and and the stuff that people are largely gravitating towards more of an understanding around why visualizations are effective, how they can be effective, how they can have positive change. So I I just think that that's interesting for a community that sort of, I think, 
sees itself as innovating new techniques. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so maybe we're already following the right the right path. I hope so. <laughs> or we're killing ourselves and, and we don't. Yeah, and maybe there is a certain saturation. You know, there's all these projects about here's like 200 ways to visualize a network or like 150 mm -hmm. timelines. And when you look at those, you have that sense of, okay, I think you tried out all the combinations now. <laughs> Can we move on? <laughs> and maybe, you know, this is a general like feeling. And, and yeah, and then the question is what's next? And as it seems, <laughs> the next thing is happening already. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I wonder yeah. also to, to your point there is how much of it is that we are now thinking about the visualizations that are broadly going to be consumed, the visualizations, again, with the pandemic, right? People are mm. consuming information, visualizations at a scale that I don't think we've seen before. And I don't necessarily see us going back from. And so how much of this is also because the kinds of messages and the kinds of populations that we're designing for are no longer those four experts in the world who have this one very specific question about right, right, a particular yeah. kind of bacterial genetics, but we're moving on to trying to go back to basics and understand what does it mean to actually design for something that communicates to everyone. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think we had, um, one of our latest recordings has been with Carl Bergstrom and we spent a lot of time just talking about the flattening the curve visualization and the many, many variations around, around a single plot. It's fascinating, right? It's, uh, it's effectively a cultural artifact with all the various implications that this, this brings. So, yeah. Um, okay. I think we can almost wrap it up. Should we talk about, um, papers that had practical relevance, maybe something that our more practical oriented uh, listeners want to play with um anything to mention there we we had there was a whole session on i think it was on tuesday around toolkits and systems um for which i think you know danielle was was talking about some of these where um there's a whole bunch of research going on in the community about how do we make these sort of the, the barriers to entry to creating visualizations, whether they're immersive or not, easier. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that there, there was a number of papers around um, open source toolkits that have been released that um, I think are, are really interesting and, you know, pot potentially um, could have a big impact for many people, I think. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. There's lots of cool new toys to play with, for lack of a better term. Um, two that really stuck out to me were there's a, a dimensionality reduction toolkit called Druid that just made it very simple to play with a number of different dimensionality reduction algorithms. So it was something that in the talk, they even give a really nice live demo talking over the demo. And it just, I'm looking forward to going and playing with it because I think it, it looks like a lot of fun and looks like something that's going to save us all a lot of headaches. Um, <laughs> and there is another system called Calliope, where the basic goal from this is, can we bootstrap the development of information and, and data stories? So they used a number of techniques from information theory to try to extract data facts and organize those facts into a preliminary data story that then the designer could go in and edit. So one thing that was really nice there is that it's not totally fully automated 
what you see is what you get, but mm-hmm. rather there is some automation to bootstrap the development of the story and then allowing the designer themselves to customize and play with things and lay things out as they go. Sounds really cool. I'd love to play with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I came across which I really liked was the data gifts study. So they collected, mm-hmm. uh, I think, dozens of different short, bite-sized uh, data animations you can use in social media and sort of looked at, okay, what structure do they have, which type of narrative techniques do they use, and and provided a few design guidelines. You know, it's like looking at a specific media format, like providing good overview of the space and then sort of just providing you with a few like tips and guidelines. And these types of things are really super applicable also to practitioners and and really helpful immediately. So I really like this one. Yeah, so if you want to play with some cool toys, uh, go to the show notes and you'll find uh, direct links to all the tools that we mentioned here. And I think we can conclude by briefly commenting on the on the new format and especially for those who are listening and didn't have a chance to really follow the conference the beauty of it is that now they can go back and watch some of the recordings there is a whole youtube channel there is a whole discord sets of discord channel they can sift through and um i don't know maybe even more than that (laughs) so yes Danielle and Mariah, what do you think about the the format and um, and especially what what we can do with it? <laughs> yeah, I I went into the conference with such low expectations and it completely blew those <laughs> expectations out of the water. Like it was it was I I now sort of feel like you can actually do remote conferences in a way that isn't horrible. <laughs> yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and and I think that um, there were there was a couple of things that that I. I feel like our, our, our features that we're going to keep, even when we go back to meeting in person, um, one of them, of course, is the, the recording and, and, and the, and the streaming so that, um, more people can, uh, can, can take part. Um, one thing I love about the streaming is that I can watch things on double speed. So, um, it takes less <laughs> time to, to get a lot of content, which I've really appreciated. Um, another thing that was interesting was this use of a discord channel, which is, you know, it was like Slack. I wasn't much of a discord user before. Um, I can't say I love it, but, um, the ability for people to sort of engage on a back channel was really nice. I think it had positive impacts. Like I think people asked a lot, a lot of people asked questions who said that they wouldn't have otherwise because you could just pose questions without having to get up to a, a microphone and wait in line in front of the whole room. Um, on the other hand, I also felt a little bit like I kept seeing the exact same people in the Discord channels. Um, and so I do think that it, it was great for those of us that sort of have established, like, we feel comfortable in the community. Yeah. But I, I worry mm-hmm. that because there was so, so much overwhelming, like, inside jokes and stuff that, like, it's also <laughs> probably off-putting to people mm-hmm. new to the community. So so I'm a little on the fence about the use of Discord. Um, yeah. But I think the streaming was just awesome. Were there moderators on Discord or was it just open like channels? It was just open. Um yeah. the the session the session chairs though would monitor Discord for questions. So then when you get yeah, to the yeah. QA part, they'd be mm-hmm. like, Well, several people have asked a question around blah, which was really awesome because the moderated questions I think made for a much higher quality QA mm-hmm. session. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think there there is a big issue of um inclusion of 
younger and less established people. I think if I have to mention one big problem with the virtual format, it's definitely this one, right? Younger, younger folks just have way, way less opportunity to just, um, uh, I don't know who, who was somebody during the, during the meetings said, I used to go around with my ducklings and, and then I, I would introduce them to, to everyone, right? It's like, the, the, I can't recreate yeah. that anymore, right? I think it was Karen Schloss. Mm. And uh, I think that's a big issue. And um, maybe it's not insurmountable, but I think it's one of the, one of the mm. big downsides. Yeah. yeah, though I will say, I think the, the inclusion part is a trade-off. I definitely think as a community, we have an opportunity here to think about how do we use these kinds of virtual formats to be more inclusive and welcoming to new scholars. Yes. But I think there's also a positive benefit on the inclusive side, which is for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to travel to the conference. I was Mm, talking with folks who had visa issues or funding issues or physical disability that traveling to the conference is either really difficult or impossible. And so having this virtual option actually allows them to be part of the conversation in ways they wouldn't otherwise be. So I think I agree with Mariah and I agree with you, Enrico, that we have some work to do in terms of continuing to make things better. I cannot thank all of the people who, you know, the technical chairs, especially but everybody who made this thing happen. I can't even imagine the lift that must have been. And I think it was executed really, really well. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah. The the inclusion is it's definitely a trade-off. It offers a lot of fabulous opportunities and also some drawbacks, but I'm hoping in the future that virtual options like this will remain something so that we can have an opportunity for participation for people who can't actually be there in person. Mm. Yeah, maybe there can be like mentorships for for newbies, you know, like if if you're new to the conference, you get assigned some somebody you can just ask what's good or how to how to find out what's good or not, or how to uh, yeah, how to find all the the interesting things or get introduced, right? Yeah, and effectively, the this conference is pretty much U.S. centered. It tends mm. it, it almost always happen in the U.S. and sometime in Europe. And what about all the other countries in the world, right? So, <laughs> so I think it's. Um, I think me and Moritz have been trying to organize a few times here in Data Stories what we call Data Stories Around the World because th- there's so much happening around the world and I think it's uh it's um I think it's a it's an important aspect of 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 inclusion that should be considered as well. I was going to point out that um even though Viz next year is also in the US the following year it's going to be in Australia. So I think mm. that oh, um, first. If, if we still have I think if we still have these virtual components, it's going to be a real wake-up call for those of us that are very North America-centric to be like, whoa, <laughs> there's people that are like 13 hours away. That's tough. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll have to see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, I was talking to, to John Gomez, who was talking about how, you know, this was enabling his students to attend and stay home in Colombia. And otherwise, it wouldn't have been an option. Yeah, so I think exactly. it's it's got yeah. real impact. So there's... Yeah. The North America centric yeah. version, and then there's just the the fact that we're a global community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, any concluding thoughts? Anything we have left to say? I think that there's going to be a lot of really interesting stuff that we see next year, based upon the experiences that we had this year with research through the pandemic, with uh, you know having a virtual conference, with uh, I think some of these these 
market trends that we're seeing. So I'm really excited to see what the community comes up with in a year, two years, three years. I think it's going to be such a different place than we were, you know, even just a couple of years ago. So I, I think it's an awesome time for, for academic visualization research. Yeah. And I, I would second that. I think a lot of these themes are really exciting. They're things that are going to drive both our foundational understanding of how visualization works and also offer new opportunities for more effective and more creative design. So I think we're seeing a lot of different intellectual communities really coming together and driving this innovation. And I'm selfishly optimistic uh, for those who may or may not be aware, there are some major structural changes that are coming to Viz that I think are going to afford even more of this intellectual interchange between these various disciplines and epistemologies. And I'm really excited to see what comes out of it. <laughs> Okay. Well, so Danielle and Mariah, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. Thanks for, uh, for the service. <laughs> and uh, well, thank you guys. Being... <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> sharing, sharing with us your ideas. I, I, I really enjoyed talking with you and I, I have learned a lot myself. And um, thank you. Yeah, we have lots of material now to catch up on. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. So we'll put links to the all the papers and the talks mentioned in the blog post and in the show notes, so hopefully also in the chapter markers. So hopefully you'll have an easy time to follow up on all the interesting stuff mentioned. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Hey folks, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is crowdfunded and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash datastories where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters. Or you can also send us a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash datastories. Or as a free way to support the show, if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be very helpful as well. And here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our homepage at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page. And there you can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish a new episode. That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just send us an email at mail at datastory.es. That's all for now. Hear you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.